So let's, uh, let's open with a prayer. Heavenly gracious Lord, I thank you, Father God, for this gathering you've given us, Lord, this body of believers that you have called out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And Father, as we open your, your scriptures, we pray your Holy Spirit would do the teaching today, Father, growing us in our, in our faith in you, our love for you, Lord God, and our love for each other. Lord, that you would continue that work that you have begun in each of us, molding us and shaping us more and more into the image of your Son, that we may go out into the world and be your representatives, your ambassadors, Lord, of your salvation and your glorious grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So we are going to be today uh, finishing up Genesis 19 and then focusing mostly on Genesis 20. Uh, but before we get there, I just wanted to start. Have you ever heard someone say something like this? I believe in God, but I don't believe in organized religion. I mean, I don't buy, or they say, I don't buy into Christianity or going to go to the church, you know. I'm always puzzled by that statement about, I don't believe in organized religion. I mean, what is organized religion? I mean, if they don't believe in organized religion, quote unquote, do they then believe in unorganized religion? Uh, and, and what would that be? What, what does that mean? Well, that's really just another way of saying um, what they believe that they are spiritual. They believe they're very spiritual people. They say, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. <laughs> they say it like that? Yes, they do say it like that, and it makes me want to throw up in my mouth a little bit, because all it is is, is idolatry. Okay? The person who says this is really just creating a god that is just like himself or herself. And, and this god that she, he or she creates in their mind is just fine with their sinful aspects of their life. Um, but the so-called spiritual person will use our language. They will refer to God. They will use language like prayer and faith and hold up certain moral values that we hold up. But they deny the true God. They deny his power and his authority, as Scripture says in 2 Timothy 3. It says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. It's a powerful verse. And at the end, it just clearly describes the spirituality that this world professes. Having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That is the spiritual person that rejects fundamental, the fundamental doctrines of Christianity, or what they call organized religion. And when you ask that person that rejects organized religion, if you, when you ask them why they reject organized religion, they will usually say something along these lines. Well, I, I reject organized religion because the churches are full of hypocrites. You know, those Bible thumpers, they all talk about being holy, and yet they do the same bad stuff that everyone else does. And if we're honest, we really can't argue too much with them about that. As churches are indeed full of hypocrites. Churches are filled with people who commit adultery, get divorced, 
lie, cheat, steal, and put things ahead of God. Churches are filled with people who are selfish, hateful, prideful, lustful, ignorant. Some professing Christians are more like snakes than they are doves. The pews are full of hypocrites. The pulpits are full of hypocrites. I'm a hypocrite. The other elders here are hypocrites. And in fact, all of you are hypocrites. No offense. But it's true. We all, you're welcome. We, we all fail in some way to live up to the standards that we want others to adhere to. Everyone is hypocritical to some extent because we all still have a sin nature that we wrestle with on a daily basis. Christians are hypocrites just like the adherents of every other religion are, just like atheists are, just like agnostics are. So, why then bother being a Christian if we're no different than everyone else in the world? Well, when Christians are hypocritical, it's because they are failing to live up to the consistent and perfect standard that Christ gave us in his word and in his life. But just because we fail to live up to that standard does not make that standard untrue. However, when followers of other religions are hypocritical, they are following in the example of their religion's founder. But Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, C.T. Russell, who started the Jehovah Witnesses, Marcus Garvey, who started the Rastafarians, L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology, Ellen G. White and Seventh-day Adventists, Mary B uh, Baker Eddy, who started Christian Science, they were all hypocrites to some extent. They all contradicted themselves in their idolatrous religions that they created. And the atheist will say, well, that's why I don't follow anyone. I march to the beat of my own drum. Well, guess what, atheist? You're also a hypocrite. You're also a sinner and contradict yourself. Jesus, however, lived up to his perfect standard and taught no contradiction. But beside that point, let's stop and think. Why did we first become Christians? Did we become Christians because we just wanted to be different than the world? Or did we become Christians because we recognized that Christianity was true? I'm hoping the latter. <laughs> Though becoming different from the rest of the world is certainly a result of becoming Christian. And even though we as Christians are becoming more and more different than the world... We still have our sin nature in common with them. And the God-hating world strives to focus on that sin nature we have that we still have in common with them. They typically don't understand or care about this doctrine we talk about called sanctification. Wherein imperfect Christians are slowly being conformed into the perfect image of Christ. That means that while we are growing in our righteous conduct... We are still, in many ways, unrighteous in how we behave and act and think. And that's what the world likes to focus on and justify their unbelief with. The world says if the Christian does not live up to his perfect ideal standard, then that Christianity must be false. And we should always respond to that person by telling them no one can live up to the ideal Christian standard. Only Jesus did. And that is why Jesus came and died on the cross to atone for the sins of those who believe. How many people here have heard of Mahatma Gandhi? Okay, everybody should raise their hands. Kids, have you heard of Mahatma Gandhi? No? Okay. Mahatma Gandhi, who lived in India, was, is revered by the world. 
as one of the most holy and spiritual men to have ever lived. Many people herald this, him as a great man who strove for peace. But Gandhi said this about Christians. Quote, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Unquote. He also said this. He said, quote, if it weren't for Christians, I'd be a Christian. <laughs> he, he said this after one Sunday morning when Gandhi decided that he would visit one of the Christian churches in Calcutta, India. And upon seeking entrance into this church, into the sanctuary, he was stopped at the door by one of the ushers, and he was told that he was not welcome. He would not be permitted to attend this church because it was for high-caste Indians and whites only. You see, Hindus and Hinduism operate under a caste system. Wherein, you are, if you are rich or you have some kind of privilege, that means you have good karma. You lived a good life in a previous life. They also believe in reincarnation. Okay, where you, you die and you take on another life in this world. But if you lived a bad life, then you come into your next life in bad circumstances. But if you lived a good life, you come into your next life in good circumstances. That's why they look at the rich as being holy good people from a previous life. However, if you are poor, Hinduism teaches that you are working off bad karma because you were not such a good person in a previous life or you have not built up enough good karma yet. Anyway, Gandhi was neither high caste nor was he white, so he was turned away from entering into this church. Gandhi claimed that at that point that he turned his back on Christianity because of that experience that he had. He actually claimed to reject Christianity because that particular church was erroneously applying the caste system. It didn't seem to matter to him that the caste system is clearly contradictory to Christ's teaching and the Word of God. But also the caste system is a system created in the Hindu religion and in their belief in karma. And Gandhi was a practicing Hindu. So why didn't he also forsake Hinduism? So Gandhi was also a hypocrite, not a great holy man. He recognized somehow that Christ was different than his followers, but he refused to follow Christ because of the sins of Christ's followers. And he continued to follow his own religion, which teaches the same thing that that church was erroneously practicing. Now, how does that make any sense? But that is the same logic used by many today who claim to reject Christ because of hypocrisy in the church. The reality is that they are just using that reason as an excuse to reject Christ and continue in the sin that they love. But for 2,000 years, the sins of Christians have been used by unbelievers to mock and reject the Christian faith. Many false teachers have made this much easier for them. Prosperity teachers all over the place, even today. They daily blaspheme the name of God through their idolatry and give unbelievers a false representation of Christianity. The world has heard their hypocritical garbage and they use it to justify their rejection of organized religion or Christianity. Let's not forget the many sins of the popes and priests in Roman Catholicism for over a thousand years. Or the many, many pastors from the 1800s in the South that erroneously used the Bible to support slavery. As the Bible actually forbids the kind of slavery that they practiced. But many unbelievers will continue to bash the church and or organized religion because of stuff like this. 
The church has no shortage of blemishes on her reputation because the church has always been filled with sinners. And this, this has inspired many to blame Christians then for evils that the world in the world that Christians did not even commit. I mean, because we believe the Bible, we here believe the Bible is inerrant, it is the word of God, and we strive to live by his word and hold up his principles. The world today labels us as religious extremists. Remember that category. They, 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 they label those that flew the planes into the World Trade Center as religious extremists. It was religious extremists that inspired the KKK to do acts of racial hatred. It was religious extremists that produced the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition and many holy wars, so-called. It was religious extremism that promoted slavery and continues to promote discrimination and violence against LGBTQ people, as many in the world claim. But again, such, such actions have no reflection upon whether or not Christianity is true, or whether they were done by Christians or not. I mean, on the flip side, when a kid goes into a school and shoots up the school after he was taught to believe that he was just a biological accident, and that he, he was just evolved pond scum, after being taught that the value of life is simply arbitrary, do schools then say that evolution shouldn't be taught in the school? Do they, they send the, say then that evolution can't be true and ban it from the classroom as they banned the Bible? Absolutely not. In fact, they double down on their religious indoctrination of evolution. So why does the world so quickly disregard Christianity and blame Christianity for the many evils in the world? Well, because the world hates Christ. And because they cannot find any sin in him, just like Gandhi couldn't, they will use the sins of the church to justify their rejection of Christ. But the sins of the church, as I said before, do not discredit the Christian faith and the truth of it. If anything, the sins of the church just further displays God's grace and affirms the message of the gospel. That we have utter and complete reliance upon Christ's finished work, his death on the cross, that atoned for our sins and, and justifies us before God. In our text today, in Genesis 20 and 19, establishes the same truth that despite repeated sins and wretched failings of God's chosen people, God is faithful to show his people mercy and grace and continue the work that he has begun in his people. A work that would culminate in the coming of Christ and his glorification in our redemption. Because of Christ, God sees us not through our sinfulness, but through Christ's righteousness. With that said, let's see how this theme plays out in our text today, in the end of Genesis 19 and in all of Genesis 20. And remember, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham had departed from Sodom and Gomorrah, and his nephew Lot departed and went to a place called Zoar. Okay? But he didn't want to live in the city because he was afraid of what God might do to that city, just as he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot decided to live in the hills, isolated from people. And his fear inspired desperation in his daughters, who feared that they would never be able to have children living in such isolation. So Lot's daughters... Their depraved, fallen thinking 
decided to get their father drunk so that they could be with him and have children. An amazing account of how depraved people can become. It's just st- it's staggering to me that Lot is called righteous Lot in the New Testament. Remember, Lot, this is, this is not an isolated incident. Lot did this abominable act with his daughters right after they were in Sodom when he almost gave his daughters over to a gang of Sodomites that were pounding at the door. Clearly, Lot's righteous standing is purely by God's grace in Christ and nothing in Lot. I mean, you would think that Lot's daughters would not have done the things that they did if Lot was leading his household in righteousness, as he should. But remember the example that Lot gave his daughters. I mean, he... He would have given his daughters away to that sodomite mob if it wasn't for the angels that intervened. Also, you would think that righteous Lot, who was so vexed by the sinfulness of Sodom, would then not get so drunk that he would engage in such an act with his daughters, as described in the end of Genesis 19. This sin that Lot committed in Genesis 19 would have long-lasting consequences. Long-lasting consequences for God's people. As the offspring that his daughters would have as a result uh, would bring forth future generations that would be idolatrous enemies of Israel known as the Ammonites and the Moabites. Although, (laughs) despite that, God would draw eventually a woman out of Moab from the Moabites and from whom... she would have children. And eventually from her, she would have a descendant known as Mary, who also, of course, had Jesus. That Moabite woman would be known as Ruth. And you read about her in the book of Ruth. Ruth, as you know, would marry a man named Boaz, who was a descendant of Abraham. So we see a descendant of this incestuous incestuous union between Lot and his daughter. Eventually, she uh, marries a descendant of Abraham. And a few generations later, David would be born. And several generations descending from David would be Jesus Christ. This is a glorious picture of how God redeems the sinful acts of man for his purpose. Anyway, despite Lot's wretched sin, God showed him amazing grace. Such grace that Peter would refer to Lot as righteous Lot in 2 Peter 2.7. A righteous standing that in no way did Lot earn, but he would be given through Christ. Lot's great, 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 grandson. <laughs> and before we get too puffed up in how much better we are than Lot, we are just as sinful as Lot. If it weren't for God's grace in restraining our depraved nature, we would become just as sinful as Lot was. But God has shown grace to us in restraining that depravity and then bringing us to Christ. And in Genesis 20, we see this same theme of grace played out on another hero of the faith, Abraham. As like Lot, Abraham would go on to repeat sins that he committed in the past and continue 
in his sinful and hypocritical doubting of God. And yet, despite these terrible examples by God's people, God still showed amazing grace toward them. So let's read Genesis chapter 20, and then we'll break it down. It says, From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Negev, and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of, his, uh, said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she, and she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, Know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very, very much afraid. And then Abimelech, Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there was no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. Do me. And every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. We'll end there. Crazy account. <laughs> so, Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. <laughs> he goes into the city and immediately falls back into his old habits of selfishness and doubting God. He again resorted to hiding the fact that Sarah was his wife and identified her to others as his sister because he was afraid that the people would kill him and to take her. 
So instead, he all but gave away his wife to protect himself. Another utterly despicable act from this hero of the faith we call Abraham. How cowardly is this? That he would give over his wife, who, remember, would be carrying the promised child of God. Isaac. Words cannot express how disgraceful and faithless this act was by Abraham. And it is the complete opposite of what Christ did for his bride, the church. Christ never forsakes us, but rather, he suffered and died for us. And plus, when we read this account of Abraham hiding behind his wife, we think, wait a minute, didn't we already read this account? (laughs) Didn't Abraham already tell a king that Sarah was his sister in order to protect himself? Yes, yes we did. Abraham did this exact same thing in Egypt in Genesis 12, 20 years prior to this account in Genesis 20. He was willing to give over his wife to save himself. And in the process, he got richer. (laughs) He increased his riches, just as he would do again in Genesis 20. And just like this in this account in chapter 20, God in Genesis 12 interceded to save Sarah from being taken by a foreign king. But if you remember too, God never rebuked Abraham for this. In fact, God doesn't rebuke Abraham here in chapter 20 either. God didn't rebuke Abraham for taking Hagar, that slave, as his wife in order to have a child back in chapter 16. God only gently rebuked Abraham for doubting God in chapter 17. Likewise, God barely rebuked Sarah in chapter 18 for her doubting of God when she laughed at the idea that she would have a child. We look back at Abraham's walk with God thus far, and we see all this lack of faith that Abraham was walking in. Abraham could be the poster child for unbelievers to use as their rejection of organized religion. And yet it seems that God, for some reason, never directly chastened or rebuked Abraham. But rather, God rewarded Abraham with sheep and oxen and servants and a thousand pieces of silver. There was no punishment given to Abraham, only undeserved favor. Hmm. That should sound familiar to us, personally. Anyway, it seems that Abraham was given no confidence conviction of his sin. The only rebuke Abraham received for his lie was from Abimelech, the king of Gerar. In in verse 9 of Genesis 20, it says, Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And this is similar to how Pharaoh rebuked Abraham back in chapter 12. And let's not forget how Sarah in Genesis 16 rebuked Abraham for agreeing to go along with her suggestion to have a child with Hagar. But none of these people seem to be the most credible people in the world to rebuke Abraham. (laughs) And yet God used them to convict Abraham. God used imperfect, hypocritical sinners to rebuke Abraham for his sin. Much like he uses the imperfect and sinful Christians today to convict the world and the elect of sin through the proclamation of God's word. But we know 
there was some kind of conviction that Abraham felt after this rebuke. After this rebuke from this pagan king. Because near the end of the account, as we read, Abraham decides to pray for Abimelech and for the people of Gerar, for their healing. In verse 17 it says, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abraham prayed for a people that he originally considered evil and a threat to his life. He prayed for a healing from a curse that God brought on the people because Abraham deceived Abimelech. This is crazy. Why did God curse Abimelech and his people and not Abraham? It just seems so unfair. <laughs> Abraham was the guy who lied, but Abimelech and his people were the ones threatened with death and cursed with this inability to have children. <laughs> God cursed Abimelech and his people for the specific act of Abimelech intending to take Sarah as his wife. And again, listen to what God said to Abimelech in verse 6 and 7 of Genesis 20. It says, Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. We should also take note here that God restrained Abimelech from touching her. Even though Abimelech had every intention of engaging in marital relations with Sarah, God prevented it from happening. This shows us something about God. It shows us his sovereignty and that he has the power and ability to restrain us from sinning. And more often than we know, he does just that. <laughs> Psalm 19.13 says, Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. 2 Thessalonians 2.7 says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So God restrains sin. And that, of course, raises the question. If God can restrain us from sinning, why doesn't he restrain all sin from happening? <laughs> this is just like the question, why did God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the, in the middle, middle of the garden? Why did God allow Adam and Eve to sin? Well, because God wants his elect people to learn to love him and obey him out of a love for him. He wants his redeemed people to enjoy him and glorify him above any desire to sin and glorify ourselves. God uses sin and sin's consequences in his sanctification process, wherein he is molding us more and more into the image of Christ. Anyway, God restrained Abimelech from carrying out this evil, and at the same time he cursed those that were Abimelechs for a sin that Abimelech had not yet committed. And that seems appalling to us from our finite perspective, but we were all born under the curse of sin when we had not committed any sin. 
We remained under this curse of original sin until Christ interceded for us through the gift of saving faith. And Abraham is a typological and prophetic picture of Christ here as he interceded for Abimelech and the people of Gerar. And when he did, the curse was then lifted, just as when Christ interceded for us, the curse of sin was lifted from us. So there was a prophetic purpose in what God was doing here in this account. Anyway, concerning this curse that God brought upon Abimelech and his people, that may seem to us harsh, harsh and unfair, but we need to remember, God knows the heart of every man. And it might just be that Abraham was right. He might have been right about his concern that Abimelech might have killed him to get to Sarah. Abraham might have been right about the evil of this city. And only after God came to Abimelech in a dream and warned him did Abimelech then show that he wanted nothing to do with Sarah. That still doesn't mean that Abraham was right in hiding behind his half-sister slash wife. So why is it that God didn't directly rebuke Abraham also? Why didn't God invade Abraham's dreams as he did Abimelech? Why did God protect Abraham in these two scenarios in Genesis 20 and, and, and Genesis 12? Did God approve of Abraham telling a half-truth in order to protect himself? Absolutely not. God, God does not approve of cowardly and faithless acts. And I can say this because of what God said through Paul in Ephesians 5. He said, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Did Abraham give himself up for his wife? No. He did the opposite. And as I pointed out earlier, Christ died for his bride and sacrificed himself for his bride. He trusted in the Father to deal with the repercussions of the Son giving himself for his bride. And this is the standard expectation that God has for husbands. And again, this is not what Abraham did. He had no such trust in God. So again, I ask, why didn't God directly rebuke him? Well, has God appeared to you and rebuked you directly when you told a lie? Or when you didn't love your wife as you should have? Did God invade your dreams and warn you because of the sins you committed yesterday? Probably not. He may have, but usually he doesn't. God generally allows us to walk in our sins for a period of time. And then his rebuke often comes to us through three different types of conduits. Three conduits that communicate to us that we have violated God's word. The first conduit is a corresponding conviction. The second one is physical consequences. And the third one is our conscience. One way that God rebukes us for sin is by calling others calling out our sin. And calling out our sin, they correspond with God's word and bring conviction to us. Wives are often gifted in this area. And using God's word to call out the sin of the husband. God also uses, uses a brother or sister in the Lord to bring us conviction of sin out of love. God even uses unbelievers to convict Christians of, of sinful hypocrisy. Another way that God rebukes us for sin is through direct physical consequences that result from our sin. 
I mean, if I steal, I may go to jail. If I kill someone, I may be killed. If I cheat on my wife, I may lose my marriage or even catch a disease. These are direct consequences of our sin that God allows to come upon us as a means of chastening us to repentance. But the third way that God rebukes us for our sin is through our own conscience, wherein we feel genuine guilt over our sin. Not because someone called us out or because we are suffering from some direct physical consequence for our sin, but simply because of God's word on our heart. And his word causes us to feel conviction before God for sinning against him. This kind of conviction requires a greater level of faith than the other two conduits of conviction. We may get away with our sin in the eyes of man, but because of our conscience, we still feel guilty under the eyes of God. Conviction of sin through our conscience is the result of God's sanctification. It is evidence of a truly changed spiritual heart or a heart that God is drawing unto Christ. Because we can fear having others rebuke us for our sin. Or we can fear physical consequences and those things can deter us from sinning. Because of our own self-interests or our own self-preservation. But ultimately what pleases God the most is that we turn from sin not for outward appearance or for self-preservation, but because we genuinely don't want to offend God because we love him. And we are thankful for what he did for us. And what we see happening here with Abraham is that God rebuked him through Abraham's own conscience. Abraham wasn't moved to pray for the people of Gerar because he wanted to be seen by others as righteous. Nor did he do it to preserve himself from any physical consequence for his sin. Remember, Abraham initially looked at these people in Gerar as godless. So why would he care what they thought of him? Also, why would he be worried about a physical consequence for sin when he would have felt justified by God because God cursed them? No, Abraham prayed for them because he was genuinely convicted of his own unrighteousness. This whole account and the many chapters leading up to this are the accounts of Abraham's sanctification. Again, what is sanctification? Is this some kind of big theological word that's only spoken of in seminaries? Nope. It's a word we all need to know. Sanctification. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. First Thessalonians 4. Sadly, the majority of the evangelical church probably can't define what sanctification is. We need to know this. This is key in our life and our walk with God and our faith. First Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. It says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an, is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but for in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Sanctification is God's will for us, to grow more and more in holiness. To sanctify something means to set something apart for special use. To sanctify a person is to make him holy, to be set apart for the Lord. And to be set apart for God, for his purposes, we have to undergo changes in our heart. And these changes are ignited through the, through the Holy Spirit in us and through hearing God's word. As Jesus said in his high priestly prayer to the Father regarding his disciples in John 17, he says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification is a progressive process, but it's also a permanent position. What? <laughs> well, Hebrews 10.10 10 says this, and by that we will, be, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ once for all. And by that, we will have been sanctified. Notice this verse suggests that our sanctification is finished in the past tense. Theologians sometimes refer to this state of being sanctified in the past tense as positional sanctification. It is the same, basically, as justification. While we are positionally holy, being in Christ and having a right standing before God right now, but we know that we still sin right now. John 1, 8-9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why the Bible refers to sanctification as a finished work, positionally in Christ, but also an ongoing work experientially. It's important for us to understand that distinction. Experiential sanctification is God's process of helping us to willingly walk in obedience to the Word of God more and more in our lives as we walk with Christ. It's the same as growing in the Lord. As 2 Peter 3.18 says now, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. God started the work of making us like Christ. And he is continuing that work throughout our entire lives. As Philippians 1.6 says, he says, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are incomplete right now. We are, we are complete in our standing with God, but we are still being molded and formed and changed. The work of sanctification in the life of a believer is synergistic in that 
it is the result of us cooperating with God in this process. This is unlike our initial coming to faith in Christ, which is monergistic, meaning it was all the work of God that brought us to Christ. It did not depend on our cooperation. The degree of which we experience sanctification is, is affected by how much we cooperate with God's word, the application of God's word in our life. As Jesus said in his prayer to the Father, in John 17, 17, he said, Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. God's word is the means by which God changes our heart, wherein he is molding us more and more into the image of his Son. Also, experiential sanctification has in view the setting apart of believers like us for the purpose for which we are sent into the world. In Jesus' prayer in John 17, he said this, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. There's that word again. Jesus set himself apart, that we also be set apart for the Lord's purpose. Therefore, we are sanctified and sent into, into the world as lights in the midst of darkness, because Jesus was. Our Lord's sanctification is the pattern and power for our own sanctification. The only difference is that we still wrestle with our sin nature, wherein Christ was sinless. But the sending of us into the world and the sanctifying we experience, it's inseparable. In serving God and going out to the world and serving God and being his ambassadors, we will experience sanctification. Prior to our salvation, our behavior bore witness to our standing in the world being separated from God. But now, on this side of salvation, our behavior should more and more bear witness to our standing before God and our separation from the world. Little by little, every day, we are being changed and perfected in the faith. Hebrews 10.14 says this, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Sanctification is an ongoing process that is building up our faith. And during this process, all of our imperfections are being cooked out of us, like on a pot. <laughs> all, the all the things are being boiled up. Proverbs 25.4 says, Take away the dross from the silver, and the smith has material for, the, for a vessel. God has us cooking over the fires of tests and trials and tribulations wherein all the sinful impurities of our heart are being brought to the surface and exposed and then taken away, scooped away by God as he grants us repentance. And in this, our faith is being purified like silver, as this passage in Proverbs points to. And this is what we've been seeing happening with Abraham over these past eight chapters. His faith has been being purified. A faith that would have, will have its ultimate test in Genesis 22, which we will come to in a few weeks. But God was so gentle in his dealings with Abraham, as he is gentle with us. Even as Abraham doubted God's ability to protect him, God showed Abraham that he was protecting him the whole time. 
Yet many will still read this passage and judge God from their fallen perspective and say, that wasn't fair. Abimelech was punished, but Abraham sinned. But we've got to read the passage carefully. Abimelech was never punished. He was warned and then granted repentance from God. Abimelech was the beneficiary of God's grace in this account, not his wrath, which he really deserved for his general sinfulness. Remember, Abimelech was a sinner. Even though he didn't sin in this account, he was still deserving of God's wrath, just as all of us are. Instead, Abimelech was given a divine encounter in his dream. And a divine encounter with the true and living God that may have changed his life for eternity. That's grace, not punishment. But the God who knows all things and is sovereign over all things did all this to achieve an end. God ordains the means and the ends of all things all things for his glory. God knew that appearing to Abimelech in a dream, telling him of, of the curse and warning him, would cause Abimelech to give Sarah back to the undeserving Abraham and then further bless Abraham with more riches. God was looking at things from his God-glorifying, eternal perspective, not from our worldly, finite perspective. We as finite creatures have no right to judge the infinite God. Anyway, the world will continue to point out the sins of those who call themselves Christians. The unbeliever will judge Christians by a moral standard that was established by the very God that the unbeliever rejects. <laughs> and this is where we can disarm them. Not by defending the sinful actions of Christians, but by emphasizing how much we all need Christ. Of course, upon hearing that, the unbeliever will try to dismiss you by saying, oh, that, all that means is you can go and sin all you want and be, still be forgiven. How is that just? Well, our response should be this, that the forgiveness of Christians is not a picture of justice. It's a picture of grace. If it's justice you want, then we are all condemned to hell. But God has accomplished his justice for the Christian sin on the cross of Christ wherein Jesus took upon himself the eternal judgment that we deserve. Only Christ could accomplish this atonement because only Christ is the eternal God and only Christ is sinless. Anyway, because we have been given savings faith in Christ, the heart of the true Christian desires not to sin. And we desire not to sin because we love God. We don't look at our forgiveness as a freedom to sin. We do it out of a we 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 um we receive this forgiveness out of a love for God and we repent out of a love for God, though we still often fail. If a person thinks that the cross of Christ gives them freedom to sin and all they want, then they have not been given genuine savings faith. The person who says this shows that they love their sin more than they love God. And that is not a Christian. But this is the encouraging takeaway that we have from this account. As we see how badly Lot and Abraham failed, even after their direct encounters with the Lord, and yet God dealt so graciously with them, how often 
Can we feel the sharp prick of conviction when we blow it, when we sin? And we can hear those voices in our head saying, you're not a Christian, you still sin, committing the same sins you did years ago, over and over. But when we hear those voices, what do we do? We go to the cross of Christ in repentant tears, and we go there by faith. And we receive the same amazing grace that Abraham and Lot received. Where when we grow in our hatred of our sin, and we grow in our love for God. And I'll close with these words. John 6, 37-40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up in the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If we come unto Christ, know that he will not turn you away no matter how many times you've repeated the same sins over and over. He will not turn you away because it is the Father who draws us unto Him through the Holy Spirit. And He brings us the conviction of sin into our conscience, which, which is part of that drawing, causing us to cry out to the crucified and resurrected Christ in whom we gain victory over and over again and freedom from sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word here today and the abundant picture of grace that we see in Genesis 19 and 20, Lord, of how Lot and Abraham so badly blew it, so badly sinned against you, so badly were faithless, and how we at times can look at ourselves in the mirror and feel that same prick of conviction in our hearts of being faithless, Sinners, hypocrites, fallen from your perfect standard. And yet, by your grace, you still call us righteous. Because of Christ, because of Christ alone, and because of that, we know we are in him because you have drawn us to you. You have granted us repentance. You have granted us a conscience that is convicted by our sin to come to the cross of Christ and call out to you for your mercy and forgiveness. And we thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from that unrighteousness, as your word says. So, Father, be glorified, be magnified in our heart as you continue this work of sanctification in our hearts wherein we grow more and more in our holiness and our love for you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.